question. Uh -huh. I've heard is it kind of like what happened in the... I, I I'm, I'm, I'm like Miss Lois. I only saw a clip of it, but that was a large number of... It, it was... God's Word was going out on the campus. They had gathering, and there were hundreds that came forth. It was more of an invitational, as I read. What Again, I only read a little paragraph. Yeah. Just talking about the impact. You don't hear much about that anymore, about things like that happening on, on the campus. So I don't, I don't know either, Miss Lois, other than it was good news to yeah. Maybe I still have it on uh, uh, my computer, huh. and I could forward it to you okay. guys. That'd be great. Yeah, I only saw that's what I saw. I saw a blip that came up on some of my, actually on the sports side. <laughs> it picked it up there and showed it to me. Something unusual happening in Auburn, so. They had one in church, uh, it was in the news uh, several months ago. Was it, was it several months ago? Yeah. Uh, big, just out, outpouring the Holy Spirit mm -hmm. and continuous around the clock, people yeah. praising. Was that at Auburn? And it wasn't Auburn. It was, okay. I can't remember where it was. Okay. But I can't remember. It was big. It was, right. it was big people coming in from the, I mean, once it got on fire, once... Once the situation got on fire, if you will, it really spread, and people were coming in all hours of the, the night just to worship and just praise. And, you know, some of these things wow. can happen. Mm -hmm. Maybe they are happening, and we're just not hearing about. So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. Well, Lois provided provided something for us here, which is. I'm not sure of the dates here. I'll just share with them what she's provided from her Bible anyway, narrative Bible. And I think I think the general trend is right exactly whether this date goes before that. I'd have to research that more. But the point being is that it was actually it wasn't until 586 that the nation of Judah was taken into captivity fully and into Babylon. However, years before, uh, Daniel and some of the kings and leaders had been taken and uh, here are some dates from her Bible. But again, 586. Keep that in your mind as the magic date where, where the kingdom fell. But according to this Bible, and, and again, I, 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 I'm just reading what she's got here, that 605, which was almost two decades ahead of that, King Nebuchadnezzar takes to Jerusalem King Jehoiakim, all right? And it's believed that Daniel came at that time. So that's, that's actually, you know, puts, puts a little bit of reference and good context to this. And in 603, King Nebuchadnezzar wants an unspecified dream interpreted, okay? And, and no, he wouldn't tell people what it was. You remember that story? That's 603. And 598, this is all before the fall of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar orders a fiery furnace. So according to this chronology, all of those things took place before the fall of Jerusalem. And then in 570, no, 570, 575 after that, has a dream of the large tree, which we'll get into today. And uh, you get into 539, he sees a handwriting on the wall, which we'll get into today. And King Darius orders in a lion's den. So, so, you know, obviously, you know, you can sort of see the logic there because remember King Darius is the one who uh, <coughs> conquered uh, you know, from the Medes and the Persians. So that certainly makes sense. Uh, the handwriting on the wall, that's certainly chronologically. So these things kind of follow the logic of the story. 
But the order in Daniel is a little different. So again, the order in Daniel isn't necessarily chronological, but it's there to convey uh, whatever message or context that uh, was meant to communicate, which I think is fine. I think you should probably see that a lot of places in Scripture. Uh, so, so the bottom line is it was just it's just a reminder that that Daniel was here before the rest of the uh, people came, and and so and but but when Daniel came, they apparently uh, they brought they brought treasures because uh, I'm using Montgomery Boyce as, as sort of my guide here. Uh, there, there's many commentaries and many good ones, and I don't mean to diminish it, but but Montgomery Boyce just has a way of communicating this stuff. I I have an extra copy. Does anybody want an extra copy? They can have it. I'll leave it up here. So first come, first serve. It's all yours. I thought I tried to find it. I had I bought it years ago and I thought I lost it and I ordered another one and here I all of a sudden looked through my books and find it. So so that's one I don't need. But it's a very good commentary on on, on Daniel. So so the, the he keeps pointing to a a particular passage where it sort of sets the context here, and I think it'll become more important here. In Daniel chapter 1, he says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged him. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. According to this chronology here, that was a couple of decades before the fall of Jerusalem. With some of the articles of the house of God, and he carried into the house of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So the context here, <coughs> and Boyce keeps pointing this out over and over again, I think it really gets the heart of it, is in this ch- verse 2, he sort of sees that as the reflective frame for the whole book of Daniel. That here you have a situation where the things of God, the, the articles of worship and all, are under the control and, and mastery of the civil authority, so to speak. They've fallen into uh, uh, the hands of the state, uh, you know, and, and so how do we respond? You know, the issue is, and, and I think the message of Daniel why I'm going through this, is, you know, we can talk a lot about civil obedience, when do you, when do Christians do this, when do Christians do that, and we will when we get time. I don't know whether we'll get to a time in this series or not. But the more I thought about that topic, the more I thought about explaining it, the more it convinced me to go back and find out what Scripture says. Where, where does Scripture give us an example for how we should behave? And I believe it's here. If you go back to, to Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah told them, you know, when you're taken into captivity, you know, be, just go ahead, go ahead and fall in, with, fall in with the program. Plant your crops. Enjoy life. Do the best you can, okay? It, it, it isn't, you know, and, and, and the other thing I want to point out here is what did Daniel, Daniel's attitude could have been one of how dare that king take those things of God and put them in, and certainly I'm sure he had that righteous indignation, but that wasn't, that wasn't his focus. That wasn't where Daniel put his effort. Daniel put his effort in simply obeying God. And, and, and you could almost have said that he had a copy of Romans 13 in his pocket, okay? Uh, he, he, because of what, anyway, that's that's the same message before and after Jesus Christ of how we should respond. So, so you know, it, it sort of gives us a context of what issues do we do we get all worked up about, and and how do we respond when we're in a situation where the civil authority is governing religion and we're having to subject to it. And, and look at how many cases here where Daniel is confronted with 
following along with the ways of the world and, 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 or, or worshiping God? And how does he respond to it? So, I, you know, there's nothing I could say or no book anybody could write or no other guidance I could give you about how to respond in this situation other than what you have right here. This is the best guidance you'll find of how Christians are to respond in, in, in this sort of situation. So, but, but, but boys keep bringing attention to that point because it, it really is important that, 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 and it sort of was the downfall of Nebuchadnezzar. When we see Nebuchadnezzar's sin, he wants to exalt himself in the place of God. He wants to put himself above God. And uh, that's the sin God will not tolerate, where men, and, and, where men put themselves and their pride and their own, their own glory above the glory of God. And, and so that is the, what we're confronted, though, in a secular humanism in the world we have where man does indeed do that, okay? So how do we respond? Do we throw rocks? Do we, uh, you know, write treatises? Well, maybe, maybe there's a place and time for that. I'm not saying that's wrong. But principle and above all other things, how we respond is how Daniel responded. He continued to pray. He continued to worship in the same way he worshiped before. He continued to practice in the same way he worshiped. He did not, you know, there, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, uh, religions, and particularly in, on the reform camp, some of them went so severe as to, after the covenanting revolution, when the glorious revolution took place in England, when William and Mary took the throne in 1688 and thereabouts, a lot of people said, well, we don't have anything to do with the government. We can't participate in that government because that government's evil. Had they read Daniel? Had they forgotten what God, you know, how, how Christians are to respond? Look what Daniel did. Daniel did Daniel uh, reject working for a civil authority? Did Joseph reject working for a civil authority? I don't think so. I, mean, I think we have a very good biblical pattern here. For we are to we are to continue our life and let God do the work. Looking for God. How did Daniel, Daniel was praying for God's glory and. You know, we're, we're, we're to recognize that God is the one going to do the work. He's the one that's going to change the situation and that we need to put our emphasis and work on that. It's a matter of attitude and faith of heart. It's not that throwing a rock at the civil authority is, is wrong. It's not where I'm coming from. I'm saying that's not the principal thing by which we, we it's the principal act by which we're commanded to, to do. Our focus should be Daniel's focus. Now, we went through chapters 1 through 3, a couple of weeks ago before this COVID monster took me down for a week. Uh, and, and if y'all haven't had that, good luck, okay? Uh, so I, I'm sure some of you have had. It, it's it's not, not a good thing, but I'm over it, and thank goodness. It's almost like, like I went into a dark hole and I came out and I'm okay now. So uh, it, it's, it's a lot worse than a normal cold. Uh, and and y'all could relate your experiences to it. Everybody responds differently. But uh, I, again, I've had two positive, two tests that I'm okay, so I'm not. I don't think I'm contagious, so I'm, I'm worried about that. But uh, but anyway, so much back to the topic. Chapters one through three, and and so and, and again, I'm positive here. I'm getting outside of my Montgomery voice, but but I, but I, but I think I'm on good ground here. Okay, and seven through twelve. I kind of divide the book into three parts. Many divided into two, and again, there's a hard division here. This is more about the history of Daniel, and this gets into prophecy. So don't don't deny that. So so if you get into the night visions and other things, but there's certainly in my mind a pattern that I see that I want to emphasize here, and I'm going to use that as a theme 
for bringing the, the trying to understand what the message is for us, particularly in regard to how we respond to civil authority, how we as Christians ought to behave. And again, uh, I'm not giving them an order, but in chapter 7, uh, you know, 7, 9, and 12, it brings up some things, some words are mentioned. An eternal righteousness, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal life. Okay, and again, I see those very much along the pattern. Again, I've talked before about the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, and you know, and again, I see this as more or less an eternal righteousness, an eternal kingdom under the Father, and an eternal life under the Son. Okay, and and again, I, I speak of these as three distinct topics. Not that they can be that that, that that they can be easily separated. You can't have one without the other. If you have eternal life, you will be a part of His eternal kingdom. And if you're part of His eternal kingdom and have eternal life, you'll have eternal righteousness because that's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, they go together. They, they are they are there. He actually uses these words. And, and you'll see echoes of actually these words showing up again and again in these chapters, but also specifically, maybe not the words, but the ideas of eternal righteousness showing up there. So I, I posited last week that, that this was an example of eternal righteousness. This was an example of the eternal kingdom. And this was an example of eternal life, okay, as, as, as Daniel was delivered. As, as King Nebuchadnezzar comes to grips with the dream and, and sees the eternal kingdom of God before, you know, that stone that's broken out that's just going to destroy and shatter the empire. Now, again, we, we don't necessarily have the same order here today. I would argue that if I had to pick one, I'd probably say this is probably the order today. Okay? But I, when I say that, I say that with great caution because... But all three ideas are there. Again, it's somewhat, it may be somewhat arbitrary that I pick one versus the other, but I'm, I, think, I think you can rightfully say that. Okay? These exact words show up exactly in those chapters 7, 9, and 12, and I use that as my guide. But, but the ideas, I mean, the more I look at the, Daniel, these ideas just exude themselves on the page. I'm not, I don't think I'm inventing this. I, I just, well, I'm just reading it and trying to roll it up and summarize it. This is what it says to me. This is, this is the message. That, 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 that there's something beyond here. Now, who is it and how? There's an eternal covenant, and there is Jesus Christ, which is the foretold by these things. So really what we're seeing is nothing more than Daniel as a type of Christ, in a sense, foretelling and showing the nature of Christ and his kingdom and how that's going to have an impact and change things. And that, and that, and dealing with, and, but you can't, you can't deny that. What's the central theme over and over again as we look at, you know, we look at Daniel in his first question of his praying and, and, and uh, in chapter one of his, of his essentially commitment to not be defiled, uh, you know, and, 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 and so, uh, and, and ultimately he showed he had the greatest uh, wisdom and understanding, at least this, even the second authority recognized that when it was all over with. That's a sense of, of this eternal righteousness. It doesn't mean that Daniel was perfect, but it rubs off on us. I mean, you know, in the biblical sense, the Bible speaks of Noah being perfect. It speaks of Abraham being blameless. 
Now, in the biblical sense, what does that mean? Does that mean that Noah and Abraham never sinned? God forbid. I mean, we can find the Bible. It itself stoles and says, it points out very clearly where Noah sinned and where Adam sinned. It doesn't mean that. It just means that they were part, that they had the Spirit of Christ, that they had the Holy Spirit in their life. And, and look, doesn't the king himself, doesn't Nebuchadnezzar himself, recognize that Daniel has the Holy Spirit. Okay, actually uses those words. That, 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 that there's something present, there's something different, there's something changed about him because Jesus Christ is in his life. Okay? So let's go back and roll, roll about this righteousness. Let's talk about this eternity for a minute. When did eternal righteousness first appear? Okay? On earth. Let me, let me narrow that down. Okay? I would argue when Adam sinned, okay, that Christ, righteousness, remember the promise to Eve of, of the seed? It's going to be, you know, that, that promise of eternal righteousness is very ancient. It's eternal. It, it isn't, it's something that only is in the New Testament. My point is these ideas exude from the Old Testament as well. And so this is a summary. Let me get back to my summary and keep my point that, that chapter 1, in my mind, is more or less about the eternal righteousness embodied by Daniel and his commitment to, to, to the active obedience of Christ, in a sense, made possible by the future active obedience of Christ, however you want to phrase it. But, but it rubs off on us. It transforms us. It doesn't mean we're perfect in it, but it means that that's our heart's desire. Our desire is to, this is, I'll, I'll, I'll use this as the heart, this more the mind, and this more the will. If you had to divide the human anatomy of soul up a little bit, but our heart, our heart is is aimed towards righteousness and doing the things that God has commanded us to do. In the second chapter, we have this dream of of this image that's ultimately broken apart, and uh, uh, <coughs> and, and and this stone that falls out of this that actually comes and and. Uh, in verse in chapter two, verse uh, verse thirty five. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff. And the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away, so that there no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is this eternal kingdom that's being talked about. This is this is this kingdom that's going to live forever that, that again it, it became a great stone it became visible as a great stone doesn't mean it didn't exist beforehand but but it does mean that it's going to take over all the other kingdoms that that when we have to deal with this issue of church and state we need to understand that the issue is not between a temporal state and a temporal church the issue is between a temporal state and an eternal church okay there's a church militant in heaven where all the saints cry out before the throne of God. Okay, that there, that we, If we get caught up in this issue of a debate between what does a temple church do versus what does a temple state do, we miss the point. We're, we're falling into a secular argument. The church is not, even though there's a form of it that's, that's temporal. Yes, today we are formed, that's true. But ultimately, who are we in our essence? We're, we're, an eternal, we're part of an eternal kingdom. That's who we are. And, and what, what, what gets us, where, where we get wrong in this church and state issue is we get sucked into the idea of, well, we've got to respond in this world. We've got to do it in this world. No. We've got to get, remember, we're on that different kingdom. We're in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's an eternal, 
It's an eternal covenant we've entered into. He's doing the work. He's bringing about his purposes. And, and there. So, okay. So let's go on to chapter 3. <coughs> and we have this image of gold uh, that he was commanded to worship. And again, uh, he was <coughs> uh, <coughs> thrown into a fiery furnace and was delivered. And remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw the, uh, was it Nebuchadnezzar? Let me get it straight here. King Nebuchadnezzar, yep, saw the uh, a fourth figure there with Daniel. Christ himself was with the three men in the furnace. He delivered them. There was an eternal life. And as a result of that, he was but and a consequence of that, he, he says, if that is the case, our God, whom we serve, and able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor we will worship the gold image which you have, nor will we worship the gold images you set up. So his, his attitude was very specifically, we will not submit to an ungodly order by a king. So can't, do you have to submit to everything you're commanded to do? No. Uh, very clearly here's an example where, where they were commanded to disobey God and uh, really get to the very heart of what really uh, threatens God's, uh, uh, where you really break the relationship with God in worship and, and in your heart and your service no, we, we don't do those things. We, 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 and he was willing to say, hey, you know, I don't know whether God's going to deliver me or not, but, but, but anyway, it doesn't matter. For my purposes, uh, you know, you need to understand we're, we're willing to die for this. This is, a, you know, you know, they cast the three men into the furnace and they saw him. And, and, and in verse uh, 25, look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth of them is like the son of God. You know, and, and, and then in verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who delivered his servants, who trusted him. And they have frustrated the king's words and yielded their bodies that they should not be, they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree to, to any people and nation or language which speaks against a mess, against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut to pieces, and their houses shall be made of ash and heap, because there is no other God that can deliver this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the provinces of Babylon. So you have in, in the, you have sort of a, a summary of all three horses that run here. And again, I want, I, want to, I want to generate another principle of prophecy. I use, I use the running horses as an analogy. You know, it could be the seven seals or the seven horses or what, I mean, you know, whatever. It's the same point. That, that the story is, is that there may be some significance to the first appearance of that horse. That's true. But then they keep on running. And what we're going to see in chapters 4 through 5, oh, really, if we get through them in time, is all three of these horses are running. They've already, they've already got kicked off. There were all three were present together in each one of these stories, but not quite so clear. But here, you can't read any one of these without seeing the ideas of eternal life, eternal kingdom, and, and eternal righteousness just jumping out the page at you. Okay, and, and and so they all are running together here. And so, uh, you know, when we read prophecy, we need to recognize there is a specific point of application about it. Yes, but there's also some continuation of that uh, as it goes forward, which I think is a very Sound principle. Okay, now we get into chapter 4. And, and again, I've sort of given you my outline here. Uh, it's a little different. There's a second dream Nebuchadnezzar has. 
and Nebuchadnezzar, and, and Nebuchadnezzar starts the, 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 the passage here, or Daniel starts it with the words of Nebuchadnezzar, to all the people, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. Okay, now I want you to know those words, the Most High God. We'll see that again and again and again, but, but that sort of gives us a sense. Remember, Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. You know, this was before uh, uh, Christianity in a sense, or, or before the Jewish people became their own nation. They worshiped the Most High God. I mean, so, so this was almost a commandment to all men in a sense. This was something that predated the nation of Israel uh, and goes back to Adamic times, times, I believe, in the sense of that primitive religion that was passed on as, as, as uh, John Owen speaks of it in his biblical theology, that we don't necessarily have all record. We don't, we don't have a record of all of what they thought and believed, but it's very evident that some things do show up. They show up again and again. And, and how great are his signs, and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not picking if actually that word shows up here. Okay. An everlasting kingdom. Right. <clears throat> and his dominion is from generation to generation. And, and I, want to make, I want to make an analogy. I'm going to hand out, I'm going to hand out something in a minute, but I want to set the stage for it. I, again, I keep talking about a triangle where we have, you know, faith and obedience and no condition. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's no condition, okay? There's justification. There's sanctification. There's adoption. Okay, this is more the work of the Father. This is more the work of the Holy Spirit. This is more the work of the Son, okay? But that's there. But, and I think I think we have this eternal righteousness maybe more here, and this eternal life maybe more here, and this eternal kingdom maybe more here. But the point I want to get to is that there is, if we're going to draw what was, how was man originally created, I would argue after the fall, maybe a triangle like this, that, that, that there still is that image of God within man, okay? But, uh, you know, and, and there's still, and go back to the, to the man that's, go back to Genesis. Was there not a commandment for us to have dominion over the earth? We were part of this dominion. There is, there is a sense in which there's a, a, a universal commandment for dominion, okay? Was not Adam given the work to tend? And to keep the garden, there was there were things that he was to do. Was he not uh, uh, told to, to to do some things and not to do some things? There were rights. There were things upon which he was told to, to do this and do that, or he was made that way. It was it was working in the way he was made? Was there not a positive commandment that he probably couldn't figure it out on his own? Don't eat of this tree in the garden. A positive law, rather than a natural law. Adam obeyed the natural law. That's not where he got into trouble. It wasn't in, in violating the principle of how it was made. It was this positive law that God gave to help. And why did God give positive laws? To help build and help us understand who he is and to understand that relationship, that, that part of God's relationship with man where we, where we have a desire to know God and, to be, and, and become more acquainted with him. That, that positive law and the obedience of that positive law was an essential aspect of that. And that's where he fell. He, he didn't fall because he kicked a goat, all right, or, or whatever, or he failed to tend the garden. Uh, that's not where, why he fell. His fall was in the positive disobedience. He, he violated the positive law of God. So you have, you know, in a sense, you have this natural law down here. You have this positive law up here, however you want, however you want, however you want. However you want. There are things that we can't understand that are there. 
But, but if you look at this triangle, you, you, you do have you do have in the man you have an eternal dominion. Okay, we we you know remember the the, 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 the rainbow. Okay, God has, has an eternal promises there. Okay, uh, there is there there is a righteousness. Look at Noah and Abraham. I mean, you know, Noah was before a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, certainly before the Exodus and the law of God. Yet there was some understanding of what righteousness is. He would call, you know, a perfect man, as I described earlier. And there was also uh, uh, this understanding that that, that we're no longer going to live forever. Okay, that they had fallen from that. So again, I'll come back to that point, God willing, if not this week, next. But let me get back to the story. You know, and Nebuchadnezzar was um, it was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace, and I saw a dream which made me afraid, and thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring to me all the wise men of Babylon for me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of this dream. The magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in and told me, told them the dream, but they did not know. They did, they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. The name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. So there's a recognition. There's something even in fallen man that can recognize the spirit of God. And, and so we could argue, we could even argue whether Nebuchadnezzar became a Christian in that sense. I'm not going to go there, but, but you see that argument. There's some, some validity to that question. Or certainly some legitimate reason to ask the question. I told the dream before him, saying, Belshazzar, the chief of the magicians, because I know that the Spirit of the Holy God is in you, and that no secret troubles you, explains to <clears throat> and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the vision of the dream that I have seen and its interpretation. So it's saying, I, I, I want to hear it. I want to know the truth. I want to understand what it means. I, I, I don't think you're going to get into trouble over this. I don't hold back. And, you know, and these were the visions in my head. And while I was looking, behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. And it talks about the great height, you know, and remember the leaves were very lovely. Its leaves were but lovely and its fruit was abundant. And it was food to all and the beasts of the field found shade under it. And in verse 13, I saw the vision in my head while on my bed. And, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried alone and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches and strip the leaves. And again, they bound, remember, they, they bound up the, the root. And, uh, and, and verse 16, Lest, let his heart be changed from that of a man and let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. So, you know, the dream almost has this interpretation embodied in it. The decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whom he will. And sets over it to the lowest of men. Sets sets over it the lowest of men. And and Nebuchadnezzar had seen. Now you Belshazzar declare the interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom have not. So, and again he repeats that the spirit of God is in him. He has confidence that he's going to give him a good interpretation. And Daniel explains the dream, and, and you know the gist of this. Uh, you know, and and the gist of it is you know. In verse 23, if you, O king, have made have grown and become strong, and your greatness has grown and reached to the heavens, and your dominion is to the end of the earth. So 
you know, in terms of that earthly original mandate of man, you know, he was he was he was getting lots of marks there. He was he was conquering the world. He was having dominion everywhere, but he was missing something. There was something more than that dominion that God is looking for. And as much as I saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, "Chop down that tree and destroy it," you know, and had a band and a band with a with a band with a band of iron and bronze, tender grass of the field, you know, basically binding it up and. Uh, until seven times are passed over. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree, most high, which has come upon my Lord God. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be in the beast of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like ox. oxen. Then shall they shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and is given to, that is given to whomever chooses. And as much as they gave the command to leave the stump and root the kingdom, be assured that after you come to know that heaven rules, therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous. So again, here, here you have in this idea of overall the story, eternal kingdom, but embedded within that is this principle of righteousness. These, these ideas cannot be pulled apart. They're inseparable. You have one, you have the other. If you don't have one, you don't have the other. And, and your iniquities by allowing mercy uh, in the poor, to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So, so Daniel gives him a positive interpretation, gives him a right and truthful interpretation. It, and again, it's not the, and in verse uh, 28, and, and it came to the king at the end of the 12 months that he was walking in the royal palaces of Babylon. And the king spoke saying, is not the great Babylon that I have built for my built for a royal dwelling, for my mighty power, and for the honor of my majesty. Okay, whoa, okay, wait a minute now. Didn't he start out this narrative? Well, you know, again, the narrative is written post-perspectively. But, you know, he, he, it conveys. He, he's very honest. What is the sin? This sin is setting himself up in the place of God. Now, again, I, I want to I get into this a little bit. And, and again, I could go on before I get into that. Let me just say, let me finish the story here on this chapter. And at the end of the time, in verses 34, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. You have eternal life here. So, you know, you could argue, well, which of these, which of these ideas is present here? Well, we could debate it, but I think, as I said before, all three go together. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the heavens of the earth are reputed as nothing, and, do, and he does according to his will in the armies of in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain the hand or say to him, "What have you done?" In the same time, my reason returned, and for the glory of the kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles restored to me, and I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of the king of heaven. All of these works are truth and his way justice, and those who walk and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. So here you have secular humanism confronting the word of God. You have a real-life example of that stone that is doing its work, that is destroying the power in place. Now, let me just pick a couple of analogies here on the church and state relationship. When when Nebuchadnezzar 
uh, when he decided to be more righteous and behave in a better way, look at what happened. It was more positive. There, were, there was positive reward here. There was, there was good things that happened. It restored my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. So, you know, this, this civil authority, you know, is there a difference between, does it matter whether a civil authority is a Christian or not? I think it does, okay? It, it's not, not that we're out there, not that we're, the point I'm trying to make is that, well, it's about how Daniel went about it. Daniel went about it by showing the work and power of God. But here, you know, there was extra majesty added. There was extra honor and glory appreciated that because he was doing it in the right frame of mind. Uh, you know, from that perspective. So, so let me just make a couple of points here. And, and again, I'm building these points largely on, on this book by James Montgomery Boyce. I have an extra copy if anybody wants it. Come first, sir. Who can run faster? Okay. But um, the, the point I want, I want I want to also just 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 convey the 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 beauty of literature here. This is world-class literature. I mean, you know, if we want to teach children to read or to study or to understand literature, what better place to go to than the Bible itself? Notice the repetition of words and how words frame the main idea. In, verse, in verses uh, 24, you have, O king, this is a decree of the Most High. You have God referred to as the Most High. Okay. And again, in verse 25, Two, you know that the Most High rules. So there's two repetitions in verse 24 of the phrase, the Most High. Okay. Now, there's something important that happens in the middle here where, where, where the king is brought to humility and, and begins to understand that. And he, he sins and he's restored, okay? And, and, he, and he comes, to, and he goes, comes to, a, to, a, to a right understanding of things ultimately. And look what frames this in, in verses... Uh, in the Most High, again, in verse uh, 32, uh, 30, 30, 32, and in 34, okay, Most High, at the end of the times, I, pray, I bless the Most High. So you have two repetitions of the phrase Most High uh, that, are, that are mentioned here. And you also can follow the same kind of logic with the words of the Holy Spirit. I mean, so you have this thing being from what's being framed. What's being framed is this conflict where Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, the great temporal king, comes to some understanding. We can argue how lasting it was. Obviously, he kept getting the same message over and over again. and kept falling, so it didn't quite stick like we would hope it would. Uh, but nonetheless, there is this conflict going on where, where the purpose is that, that the king may know better, that, that the world may know that, that, that there's something that's being accomplished. And, and, that, and that this sin of pride gets to the very heart of what we're all about. Whether that pride is in Babylon or the pride in all righteousness or whatever it is, that that this this honor, that just God just becomes more offended by that than any other thing we can imagine. This this is, you know, it's back to our frame of focus. Our frame of focus is God is going to be the one that changes this church. God is going to be the one that changes the heart. God's going to be the one that changes the nation. Yes, we may play a part in that. Maybe we need to be attentive for how we can do that. Yes, we might write treatises or, or read treatises or try to understand how we should behave. But here it's right before you very clearly. If you don't have God in the center of that, if you don't recognize the most high, and, and, if, you, and if you don't understand that that's the sin that really, that really, that really gets, and gets back to where Boy started this. Remember he pointed out where the articles and treasures of, the, of some of the, some of the, some of the, the articles that were used in temple service were under the control of the king. I mean, you know, there, there is this outward thing here, but it's also 
it reflects this power and dominion where, where, he, where he wants to set himself on high. And Boyce throw, shows out three passages that I thought were helpful here. We'll go over them very briefly in the time we have. But he points out that whenever this most high is used, he points out, well, man, kill the death, that's true, okay? That this is truly beyond, that this understand. this isn't just a Christian idea. And, and so we, we shouldn't think, well, having God honored and, and seen as the most high, those states, you know, nothing to do with the state or what? Of course, that's the whole purpose. What is Jesus Christ doing other than bringing all, every knee shall bow before him, okay? You know, how many times does it talk about uh, uh, work, kingly powers coming before and bringing their praise and glory before God, okay? It's not that that's natural in them, but as a result of how he works and brings it about, he's going to bring about that victory. Not us. Okay, we may be an instrument in it as Daniel was, but he's the one that's going to do the work. But anyway, back to this point, a most high. He had a very good uh, summary of that. He points to a couple of passages here. Let's go, let's go look at, let's go follow his little rabbit trail, which I thought was most informative. Okay. Let's go back uh, to Isaiah 14. <clears throat> and again, we have, we have uh, actually the fall of Lucifer in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of morning. How you are cut down to the ground. You who have weakened the nations, you have said in your heart, I will ascend into the heaven. Almost a commentary on, uh, on the situation here in Daniel, is it not? I will exalt my throne above the stars of the God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the furthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to show to the lower depths of the pit. So here you have, you know, and again, and, and notice the context. This is setting. This is what I'll call the prelude or the or the preamble to the destruction of Babylon. And 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 Babylon is given as the first of a type. Babylon's destroyed. Assyria will be destroyed. Philistia will be destroyed. Moab will be destroyed. You know, and on and on and on and on and on as God's kingdom is brought into its power. Babylon is sort of the sort of the phrase or, or the first illustration or the principal the principal point by which it brings the focus of our attention on Babylon being an example of that type of nation. Here we have in Daniel, we have, have the kings of the world kind of played out in a sense of how we're to behave in that sort of environment. But but nonetheless, here you have Nebuchadnezzar's sin which is our sin, which is whenever we want to set pride or ourselves up above these things, God will bring us down, okay? And, and, and so uh, that is, you know, we could get more out of this. I, we could spend a whole day on chapter 14. But I wish to point out a couple of other passages where, where you have the similar idea that Montgomery Boyce also pointed me to, which I thought were helpful. Ezekiel 28. words of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, they say, thus says the Lord, because your heart is lifted up and you say that I am a God, I sit in the sea of gods, in the midst of the seas, you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel, there is no secret that can be hidden from you, with your wisdom and your understanding, you have gain wisdom and riches and gather gold and silver from the treasury. 
By your great wisdom to trade, you have increased your, your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have set your heart as a heart of God, as, uh, as the heart of a God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers against you. God, that sound like what happened to us today. The most terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their sword against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor, and they shall throw you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the midst of the seas. Will you stay? Will you still say before him who slays you, I am God, but you shall be a man and not a God in the hand of him who slays you. You will die the, the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of the alien. You have spoken against the Lord God. So here again, the, the, the context is not just the heathen. It's within the context clearly by bringing in the death of the uncircumcised kind of is an implication of this applies to those in the church as well. And, and, and so, you know, we could go on to lots here, uh, you know, but there's also a future blessing on Israel from this that, that chapter ends with, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. So all of this is, all of this context, all of this is happening in this world around us so that the world may know that God is God. Another passage where this idea shows up is, I've already done that one, it's Isaiah 14, got it, all right. So I've already done that one. <clears throat> okay, so, but I was thinking about this idea, and again, he mentions Melchizedek, but another passage came to my mind, which yeah, I'm sure he would have mentioned if he'd thought of it, but it's the same point. In, in Deuteronomy 30, you see the same idea. So this is, this is a well-established idea in Scripture. And, and it has to do with our faith, the very heart of who we are and who we believe, and, 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 and coming to be uh, in that belief with God. It's, I'm going to find Deuteronomy 30 if I can put my full fingers on it here. Deuteronomy 30. In verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who shall ascend into heaven for us to bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you may say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear and do it? But the word is near you and your, in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. See, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil. So you have this struggle before us in our heart that pride is really at the very heart of it. Look at, look at Adams and, and, and Eve. You can probably, many argue that it relates back to pride. I mean, we can certainly see that here. But you, but you have this, this eternal kingdom that is antithetical to this idea of secular humanism and its pride. So let me try to wind up two chapters in five minutes. God help me. Okay. Chapter 5, I'll be very brief. This is the feast where the, where the words are written on the wall. And again, it's framed. It, it, it's, it's almost uncanny that he uses this, this framing of the Most High here around the humbling of the, of the person, okay? And one of this Most High is in verse uh, 18 in chapter 5. The, the most, uh, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom. Okay, so you have that Most High there. And then in verse uh, 21, till you, you know, and they fed him grass from oxen, and they, grass like oxen, and his body was wet, the dew of heaven, till he knew the most high God rules. 
So again, you have the same story told in a capsule form. The original story had two most highs. Again, and here the summary of it has one most high, but it frames the same event, that, that, that cataclysmic change in his heart that took place. And when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened with pride, he was deposed okay, and driven away. So, so you have this being framed. <clears throat> and, <clears throat> but, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. And he said, well, you haven't learned that lesson, his son. You haven't learned that lesson. Uh, you know, you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and have brought the vessels in your house. So you have the idea of eternal kingdom here. I'm not saying it's that's certainly the same ideas that are here. Uh, but, it, but again, one, of, one other thing that's pointed out here is a lot of, a lot of the original, I have to use my minutes wisely and I'm already getting off track, but uh, something he pointed out here that I, I was, I had not known that I thought was very helpful, and that was that uh, the name Belshazzar in the early 1900s, the liberal scholars said, oh, there's no record anywhere of a Belshazzar. You know, there's, no, there's it's just something made up, okay? Well, actually, they did find uh, uh, some records of a Belshazzar who was the son of the king. And the question is, was he really ruling? Well, I mean, look, if you read all of these little records and accounts, you'll see that actually the king was off fighting a war somewhere else. And, and Belshazzar, the next in line, was... Indeed, um, the uh, a person who was uh, second in line, but in, in far as Daniel, as far as the story is concerned, the one in charge. Okay, so here the actual events of the Bible were proven, and even more. Why was Daniel only given the third highest rank of the kingdom? Because Belshazzar couldn't give him the second because the, the, his father was still alive. Okay, and and so you know here here you have this story. And, and, and so you have this, you know, this, this situation of, of, uh, that really plays out. How can you do that? How can, is scripture just so true in all of its things? But, you know, and again, you know this writing on the wall, the three words, and, and you see these three words, and I'm not going to try to get into the Hebrew or the Greek or any other things there. I'm just going to try to say how the Bible itself interprets their meaning. You know, it says this is the interpretation of each of these many. God has numbered your, king, numbered your kingdom. Hey, Listen up, king. Your kingdom is not eternal. Tackle. You, you have been weighed in the balance and you found one. Guess what, king? You don't have eternal righteousness. And prairies, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Okay? You, you know, your, I'm sorry, your days are numbered, your life. And I got, I got them ordered. Your, your, your God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. So the life, the kingdom, they're all, they're all temporal rather than full. So they kind of convey these, these same ideas in capsule form because these ideas of how we follow with God is that this is just really a way of our, our disobedience. It's just the form we go into. And again, Boyce referred us in the time we have left, I think it might be most fruitful, to, to go to Romans 1 and, and see the nature of, of the way that we fall. Both, both in the previous chapter 4 and 5, you have this fall of man became like a beast. He tells a story of Gershner, the great, Stroll keeps talking about Gershner all the time. So Gershner was talking about these passages and compared rats to men. And some lady in the audience was offended and said, how dare you uh, compare rats to men? And he said, well, I'm sorry, man, but I have to apologize to the rats, okay? Uh, you know, that, that men, men can often fall in, in very despicable ways. Rats are rats. God made them. Why did I say that? Well, rats are rats are the way they are because that's the way God made them. Men ought to know better. Okay? So, so, to, you know, so when we behave like rats, 
it, 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 it sort of conveys that. The other point is in Romans 1, we have, we have Paul's uh, summaries of what, what, how is man fallen. In chapter 1, verse 24, Therefore God had gave them up to uncleanliness, okay, to the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, and they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessing forever and ever and ever. So they, they, they essentially, this is, I would relate to, to the, the, this, uh, this <coughs> gave them up to uncleanliness, okay? And, and you could argue where that falls in this schema. You could say it's righteous, it's yes, but it's also, look at the heart of it. The heart of it is who you're serving. It's who you're worshiping. And it's what, what's in your mind. It's not just about your heart, it's about your mind. It's also about who you worship. Putting the creature before the carrier. That's, that's, the, that's exactly what we're saying here. This is what this eternal kingdom violation is. Uh, we, we're saying our king, you know, we're eternal, we're not. We're, we're, we're just man, okay? We're, we're not eternal. We're, we're, given, we're taking God's glory away from him. The second one in verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to their passions. For even their women and their exchange, the, the, the natural use against nature. And I'm going to get into that argument other than to say their passions, the heart. I mean, we're dealing with righteousness and, and the in the more human understanding of what righteousness is. What, what is our heart? It isn't so much the deeds that we do, but the heart-given motivation by which we do these deeds that reflects the bestiality, that reflects the, the fall of sin there. So it, that's really the heart of violation of righteousness, just as the heart of violation of the first one, that's uncleanness and all things result from it, against from what? From pride. What does this result? From the heart, from the heart Okay. Or, you know, and, and again, the third one in verse 20, 20, 28. And, and even as they do not like, even, at, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. So here you have the, the imperfection of the mind that goes along there. And again, the mind and the life and, and being made in the image of God. There are lots of images and illustrations here. But you have, you have that, you have, in essence, in my mind, we, we don't have time, unfortunately, well past our time, to get into chapter 6, but uh, I'm not going to cover it more than this, other than to say, you know, it's Lifford thrown into lion's den. You'll see, you know, the, the very same issue of, of faithfulness, the same very idea showing up there. And, and, and near the end, it says, because he believed in his God. So Daniel was taken out of the den, and no injury was given found in him because he believed God. It's faith in God. This belief, his mind was in the right place. Eternal life. I don't have time for questions. We can pick them up next week. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we meditate on your truth here in Daniel. We lift this thing up in Jesus' name. Amen.